0: Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. It always is. I love to be with you on a Sunday morning as we look into the Word of God. And great singing, by the way, this morning. I really was getting it uh, in my ears as I was singing out and I was hearing you sing. And isn't it great to be able to sing together the praises of the Lord? We have a great God, and our God is incomplete control of all things and he is a God who loves us and cares for us and he has sent his son Jesus Christ to come to the earth to do what we could not do for ourselves to die in our place to provide eternal life and we're here today to celebrate that and we're going through the gospel of John and uh, we're going to be in chapter 7 today so if you'd like to turn to John chapter 7 our text for today is verses 25 through 36 and while you're turning, uh, I'll just mention the big pink elephant in the room over here on the side. This will be the only week that it, that is scheduled to be up, but that wall, that common wall between the auditorium and our new overflow room will be taken down starting tomorrow. And so you'll see a complete and total transformation between this week and next week, and then the following week all the finishes will happen And so that will be our overflow room. There'll be a door that's cut in that'll go out into the hallway. Uh, It'll be a great place uh, for folks that would uh, like to sit in there. If they have a fussy child or a squirmy child and would like to be in there, there's going to be a monitor up on the wall where you'll be able to see the service. Most people will be able to see in, but some may not. There'll be speakers in there. There'll be a heating and cooling unit in there as well. But um, the Lord is good. The Lord is good, and uh, we have faithful saints here that uh, love the Lord and that uh, have faithfully uh, given to the Lord's work, and so that's why we're able to do things like this, and so thank you so much for that. John chapter 7, verses 25 through 36, and I would be remiss not to mention, as Grady did this morning, uh, a huge welcome to our friend's Ted and Melody Grafe, uh, who are with us. And uh, where art thou? Over there on the side. Uh, Yes. (laughs) uh, We have been on the journey with you. We have prayed for you faithfully every time we have met over the course of the last year. Every time we have gotten together, we have prayed for you. And this is an answer to prayer, and we are so thankful to see you guys this morning. Ted was actually the first person that I ever spoke to uh, before we moved out here to Pennsylvania. And so you can blame him for that. (laughs) Uh, But he's very dear to me and very special to me, both he and Melody. And so welcome. It's so good to see you guys. Well, we're going to dive back into our text this morning. uh, We've been working our way through the Gospel of John, and uh, it has been a great journey. And so we want to continue on. And really, this is a continuation of a story that began back in the early part of chapter 7, and we'll continue on. And really, it's it's more of an ongoing scenario. And Jesus is in the temple, And we are learning more and more and more as he reveals himself to the people. Well, it's very interesting, at least to me, to read about the life and the beliefs of Theodore Roosevelt, who, with the assassination of President William McKinley, became the youngest president in the nation's history at the age of 42. Uh, He only served for 194 days as vice president before assuming the presidency. He served from 1901 to 1909. He was said to have brought a new excitement and a new power to the office of the presidency. But it's this quote from him that has always stuck with me from the first time that I heard it. Teddy Roosevelt once said, Nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, or difficulty. I have never in my life envied a human being who led an easy life. I have envied a great many people who led difficult lives and led them well. My father told me something very similar when I was entering adulthood. My dad said to me, Anything of any value will have a steep cost. Life is not easy, and it was never intended to be easy. And so don't spend your time and energy and efforts trying to make your life easy and comfortable. Instead, just be faithful following the Lord and obeying him, and then just take the other stuff as it comes. And that's good advice. Of course, Teddy Roosevelt's one of the four former presidents on Mount Rushmore. He's considered one of the greatest presidents in the history of our country. And many believe that he's regarded that way because he knew that life was tough, that tough decisions and a resolute spirit came with the office as we relate a statement like this to our lives as Christians, we find some definite parallels. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know Jesus often spoke of the difficulties and the persecution that would come with those who follow him. He he would regularly say that there will be opposition. There'll be a hatred from the world as he becomes the Lord of our lives. The apostle Paul also often spoke of the rigors of the Christian life and that it was never intended to be easy. In fact, the apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12:10, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. But Paul reminds us that the key to dealing with trouble is relying on the strength that Jesus supplies. Paul said, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, for the Christian, we are, we're empowered by Christ. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live up and above our circumstances because our lives are no longer about us, for we have been bought with a price. You see, Jesus came to the earth to give those who would believe in Him abundant life. Now, we're not there yet in the text, but in John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus will say this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus said, I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. And so what does he mean by that? Well, a thief steals because he's selfish. He wants what someone else has. Jesus came to give not to get. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to give eternal life to undeserving sinners. He came to give an abundant life that may be difficult, but it is not without purpose and great value. The, the word "abundant" in the Greek is "parason," and it means this: exceedingly beyond measure, a quantity so abundant as to be considerably more than what one would expect or anticipate. And so in short, Jesus promises us a life far better than we could ever imagine. But the abundant life that Jesus offers has nothing to do with material blessings. Sorry, prosperity preachers. That's not what Jesus has promised. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth. He said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who who love him. Paul also told the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And so the Lord doesn't promise us abundance of material goods, but he promises us an abundant life not a comfortable life surrounded by people who think like us or even like us that is not what we signed up for and that's not what he offers jesus offers an abundant life blessings that are unimaginable and incalculable the truth is that jesus is the only face on the mount rushmore of life And we are to dedicate our lives to him. And many faithful disciples did that. But as we come to our passage for this morning here in John chapter 7, verses 25 through 36, we find that the masses would eventually turn on Jesus and ultimately move to put him to his death. So let's pick up the story here in verse 25 of chapter 7. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know that where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. And then Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come to myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. And so they were seeking to seize him, and no one laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? And the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering those words about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officials to seize him. And therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, where, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? Well, as we work our way through this today, let me give you three actions or reactions related to Jesus, Okay. Three actions or reactions related to the Jesus. And and the first one is this. The pluckiness of Jesus. The pluckiness of Jesus. I came across this word pluckiness recently. I really liked it. Never heard it before. But it means courage, boldness, and bravery. And that certainly applies to Jesus. Right? Look again at verse... 25 verse 25 so some of the people of jerusalem were saying is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill look he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him the rulers do not really know that this is the christ do they however we know where this man is from but whenever the christ may come no one knows where he is from then jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So first here in verses 25 through 27, we see plucky action, plucky action. Jesus was always bold when he spoke. He was meek in spirit, but he was bold in speech. And he spoke with unparalleled authority. And the people and the authorities were shocked by this, especially coming from a man who had never been formally educated. He had not gone to any of the rabbinical schools. Uh, He was a man that was born in Bethlehem from the city of Nazareth, a small, insignificant town. It's interesting here that after entering Jerusalem, during the middle of the Feast of Booze, Jesus goes right to the temple the most sacred visible venue in Judaism and he begins to teach the people and they're amazed at the the grasp that he has on the scriptures but they're unsure about his claims and so the people were asking questions among themselves questions like isn't this the guy that the authorities are seeking to kill here he is speaking publicly so why aren't the authorities doing anything well the word publicly here can also be translated boldly or confidently or plucky So Jesus is basically six months away from the cross. I want us to grasp the timeline that we are witnessing here as we go through the Gospel of John. We know this because of the mention of the feasts. The Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles is celebrated every year in October. It would be the following April around the time of the Feast of the Passover that Jesus would be arrested and crucified. And so Jesus' time on the earth was winding down, and as time passes by, he becomes much more clear as to who he is and why he's come to the earth. Again, all of this in the perfect timing of the Father. Those who know me, uh, know me well, know that I am very time conscious. Uh, This was beaten into my head by my Father, Uh, from the time that I could understand what in the world he was talking to me about but he would always say things like it's better to be 30 minutes early than a minute late and you know this because if you invite us to your house pastor Dave and Kathy are probably going to be 15 or 20 minutes early and that's just the way I grew up it's just the way that I've done things Kathy and I have had many many discussions about this over the years When we first got married, now she's not late, but she's like on the buzzer. Like if you say, hey, we'd like you to come over for dinner at 6 o'clock, she will be there at 6 o'clock. If you invite me over for dinner at 6 o'clock, I'm getting there probably at 20 to 6, and um, I'll help you set the table. But (laughs) time is a thing mentioned in Scripture over and over, right? We're to, what are we to do with time? We're to redeem the time, right? We're to make the most of the time that we've been given. So we're to redeem the time. We're to look for these special opportunities that God brings our way and to capitalize on those and to honor Him with our time. So time is important. And here we have a reaffirmation of that because Jesus is working on a timeline, a specific timeline. And so actually Jesus will be more like Kathy, who who is right on the buzzer. He's following exactly, exactly the timeline of the father that the father has given to him. So all this stuff is happening, but we're seeing over and over and over again, that it says, but the time is not yet. The time is not yet. So the reason why the authorities are not arresting Jesus is really twofold. First, from the human perspective, the authorities are perhaps concerned that by arresting Jesus in public, they could start a riot because there, there's still mixed feelings about him, and we see this here in the text. Some were beginning to believe in Jesus, and at this point, it would be a political misstep to arrest him. It's very interesting here in verse 26 that there is even a quick thought about maybe the authorities know that he is the Messiah. But that's quickly dismissed because the people reiterate that they know where Jesus is from. He's from Nazareth. We know where he's from. We know his parents. By the way, as I was working through this this past week, I just had a thought. I wondered how many people were on the face of the earth during the time that Jesus was on the earth. You ever wondered about this or thought about this? So I began to do some research, and I I found that there are two big numbers, and, and there's a big disparity between the numbers, but there were somewhere between 150 million people and 300 million people that were on the earth during Jesus' day, okay? Now, that's a lot of people, but in comparison to what we see now, I saw a statistic from the U.S. Census Bureau that by 2050, they're expecting 9.2 billion people on the earth. And so Jesus is on the earth. There's a lot of people, but not certainly not like there is today. But one of the reasons why most of the people dismissed the idea that Jesus could be the Messiah was because there was this long-held belief that the Messiah would just magically appear and rescue Israel. Not to be born of a woman, physically grow up in plain view, the Jews misinterpreted passages like Malachi 3.1, which says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, with all of the emphasis on the word suddenly. Now, jump ahead with me to verses 40 through 43 here as i said there was some there were some who were awaiting a miraculous sudden appearing of the messiah but that's later rebutted by those who knew their old testament so look at verse 40 some of the people therefore when they heard these words were saying this certainly is the prophet others were saying this is the christ still others were saying surely the christ is not going to come from galilee is he has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. So where did they get this idea that he was to be from from Bethlehem. Well, again, from the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, which says, "...but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, from Bethlehem, one will come forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His times of coming forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity." So you remember that Jesus is somewhere around 32 years of age. As people have tried to quantify uh, Jesus' years on the earth, it's somewhere around 33 years that Jesus lived on the earth. We don't want to get hard and fast about that because we really don't know. We really were not told. But he's somewhere probably around 32 years of age at this time. So 30 years, Jesus basically lived in virtual obscurity. We have very little revelation as to what went on in the life of Jesus for his first 30 years. We have a few accounts in the Gospels about some things that happened during his youth. But for the most part, we don't have the revelation in Scripture as to what transpired through the first 30 years. At least not a lot of detail of that. So what we have in the Gospels is primarily what transpired during what we call his public ministry. So that's the last three years of his life. So let's just say he lived 30 years on the earth. We don't know much about what happened. We know he was the son of a carpenter, and so he probably took the trade of his father. He probably was very active in carpentry work. We know that he had brothers and sisters. We know that he had a mom and a dad. We know that he had other relatives. We know that he had friends and other companions. We know that he interacted in society. But it wasn't until these last three years that he would actually reveal himself as to who he is. And what we've seen in the text is he's doing that sort of progressively, right? So he's progressively revealing himself. He's not, he didn't come out when he first... The first miracle that we looked at in the Gospel of John was when he changed the water into wine at the wedding at Cana, right? And so that was his first miracle, but he didn't say everything about who he was at that time. In fact, we find in the other uh, Gospel accounts that he spoke in parables on purpose. So this was a progressive revealing, but now we're within six months of Jesus going to the cross. And so now it's starting to get very real. And so we're getting these accounts now of these authorities that want to seize him. They want to take him in. And so this didn't just happen at the end. This is a progressive thing that's been happening now and it's growing. And so now there's more and more talk about he's a blasphemer, he's a liar, he's a deceiver. He's saying he came from the glories of heaven. How can that be? We know he came from Nazareth. We know that Mary and Joseph is his mom and dad. How can all of this be? He didn't fit the description of what many were expecting from the Messiah. But this is a reminder that there have always been a misunderstanding about Jesus, right? I, did any of you see the he gets us campaign? There must have been hundreds of millions of dollars that were poured into this campaign. There were television commercials, there were were billboards, there were all kinds of these things. He gets us, right? He gets us, all about Jesus. He gets us. Well, that's not the issue. The issue isn't that He gets us, the issue is do we get Him? And this is what we're seeing here in the text. Do these people get Him? Do they understand who He is? Today there are cults like the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses who deny the deity of Jesus. They don't get Him. They don't know who He is. They can talk about Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not the Jesus that we are studying as we move through the Gospel of John. So that's all from a human perspective as to why the authorities didn't arrest him. But secondly, from a divine perspective, as we've said, the time has not yet come for Jesus to be arrested. And as I said, that time would come the following April around the time of the feast of the Passover. And so at this point to get our bearings, Jesus is six months from the cross. It's starting to get real. So we see plucky action from Jesus in verses 25 through 27. Now secondly, we see plucky speech here in verses 28 and 29. Jesus boldly proclaims that he is from him who sent him. And it says here that he cried out. This means he intentionally elevated his voice saying, you both know me and you know where I am from. He's using irony here. Do you catch that? Because in reality, he's saying just the opposite. So you think you know me and where I'm from? Huh. Hardly. Once again, he's sarcastically calling out their lack of spiritual knowledge and unbelief. Jesus then reiterates that he has been sent by the Father, and he knows the Father because he's from the Father. And understanding this truth that Jesus was sent to the earth by the Father is absolutely necessary for one to know if they'll be saved from their sin, right? John 3:16, the seminal verse in the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, hold on to this verse, John 3:16. Because I'm going to come back to it later in the message. And so, the first action or reaction is uh, the pluckiness of Jesus. And now, secondly, we find the polarization of Jesus. The polarization of Jesus. Look at verse 30. So they were seeking to seize Him, and no man laid his hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. So Jesus was sinless. (laughs) Think about this. Jesus was sinless and perfect, and yet they want to seize him. Think about it in the classroom. In school. It's not the good kid that gets in trouble. It's not the, the kid who does what the teacher says for them to do that gets in trouble. It's the kid that is the one who's doing his own thing. He's not obeying the teacher. He's not following the rules. This is hard for us to really grasp. Jesus was sinless and perfect, and yet they want to seize him. He walked among liars and cheats and scandalous people, sinful people. Jesus was perfect, but they want to seize him. As we've seen over and over, the time was not yet right. Again, there's a human aspect of this and a divine aspect. From a human standpoint, perhaps they didn't attempt to seize him because there were so many surrounding him, and there were so many supportive of him. And there was a growing number of people who were believing in him, verse 31. But from a divine standpoint, it wasn't time. That is yet future and the time will come because that's why jesus came to the earth he came to do the will of the father to die in the place of all those whom the father had given to him so he goes to the cross eventually to redeem all of those people and it is an amazing sacrifice when it says here when the christ comes he will not perform more signs than those which this man has will he So what those who believed in Jesus meant by this is Jesus is obviously the Messiah. After all, who could perform more signs than him? It's a one plus one equals two statement. (laughs) Uh, Jesus says that he's been sent by the Father and has shown himself by his works, so he must be the Messiah. Of course, this incensed The authorities and they sent their de facto police officers to arrest him and this brings us then to the third action here or the third reaction and it is the proclamation of jesus first the pluckiness of jesus second the polarization of jesus now third and finally the proclamation of jesus verse 33 therefore jesus said for a little while longer i am with you and then i Go to him who sent me, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot go? This is serious stuff. Jesus tells these people that the time is now to seek me, to seek after him, to come to him. Because at some point, what does he say? At some point, it's going to be too late. So come to me now. At some point, they will not be able to go where he is going, he says. Meaning heaven. Instead, what does he say? They will all die in their sins. He says this very explicitly in John chapter 8 and verse 21. He says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. How many times have we seen that phrase? Then he said again to them, I go away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin because where I am going, you cannot come. Why? Because only those who believe in Jesus Christ will experience the glories of heaven. So where he's going, those who are in unbelief aren't allowed to enter. Only those who have believed in Jesus. This is all unfolding before our eyes as we see this. As we see the progression of the Gospel of John, as we see the progression of this story, as as Jesus has gone to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, He went discreetly. He wasn't going to go with guns a-blazing. He wasn't going to go with a megaphone to announce who He is. He went discreetly. He went secretly. But as He got there he decided that he would go to the temple. It's right in the middle of the Feast of Booths, and so there were a lot of preoccupation with different ones. But he goes to the the temple, and he begins to teach. And he's slowly but surely revealing himself in power. But they can't go where he's going. They'll die in their sins, Because they have not believed in Him. And in the same way, those today who refuse to believe in and follow after Jesus will also die in their sins. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. You go to a ball game and there's 30,000-40,000 people at the ball game. I look around and I don't know if you think like this, but I do. I, I look around and I go, most of these people are going to die in their sins. Most of the people that are in this stadium, because the, the way is narrow, right? The gate is really narrow to eternal life. But there's this massive opening for the masses of people who will die in their sins. I have a heart of compassion for people. I try to do as much evangelism as I possibly can. I work hard at this, but as I was thinking about it this week, I'm not working hard enough. I'm not working hard enough. There's an urgency, folks, for us in sharing the gospel eternal life is at stake and so these people began to talk among themselves and they ask where does he intend to go that we will not find him what's he going to do turn his attention to the gentiles (laughs) the gentiles that he refers to here probably non-ethnic jews who had converted to judaism all this is very telling And it reminds us of what Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 55 and verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You I was thinking about, there's an expiration date. Kathy and I are going away for a few days uh, this this week up to New York. I'm going to go to Cooperstown for the first time. It's been on my bucket list my whole life lived 60 years here to finally get to go to Cooperstown. I'm really excited about it. We're going to see some friends, stay with some friends, going to make our way up to Niagara Falls, Uh, just going to spend some time together up in New York. So we're going through the refrigerator, and I said to Kathy, I said, you know, some of this stuff's going to spoil over the next five or six days. We're not going to be here to eat it. So we ought to just give it to, to people that can use it. And so we brought some stuff today to give to different ones. And, but it made me think that there's, there's an expiration date on almost everything. Do you ever, you ever look at these things? I ate something the other day, it was two years old. Got it at sunset, it was all good. I didn't care. I figured the worst thing that could happen is I get a little stomach problem for half a day. But there's an expiration date on just about everything. I get emails constantly with all kinds of things, 30% off if you use it by this date, coupons in the mail. Usually, I don't know about you, but usually by the time I get around to using them, I look at the card and it was expired yesterday. I'm like, oh, and I really needed a new pair of jeans. Oh, I really needed a shirt. There's an expiration date on just about everything. And Jesus reiterates here that there is an expiration date on Jesus' offer to turn to him. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and told them the very same thing. He said in 2 Corinthians 6-2, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The writer of Hebrews said it this way in Hebrews 4:7: Today, if you hear my voice, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. There's always been a clarion call for sinners to repent of their sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me remind you that the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus were placed in the New Testament. But all of what we've been considering in the Gospel of John took place in the Old Testament economy. You understand that? It was all during the age of the law. The church age didn't begin until after Jesus went to the cross, died in the place of sinners, was resurrected on the third day, appeared on the earth in a glorified body for 40 days. It wasn't until after his ascension up into heaven from the Mount of Olives, and those of you who are going on the Israel trip in November will stand in the very place that Jesus ascended up into heaven and will descend when he comes to set up his throne, it's remarkable. But it wasn't until after his ascension up into heaven and the giving of the Holy Spirit at the Feast of Pentecost. And by the way, why we know dates is because of the feast, And I I shared that with you earlier, right? So the Passover is in October. The celebration of the Passover is in October. And then in, I'm sorry, in April, uh, the Feast of Booze was in October, But what we have here is the Feast of Pentecost. That's when the church is inaugurated, and that means it was 50 days after the Passover. So that allows for the time of Jesus to go to the cross, die in the place of sinners, be in a grave for three days, to be resurrected, to spend 40 more days on the earth, and then there's the inauguration of the church. Because what did Jesus say when he left, when he was going to leave? Before he ascends up into heaven, what does he say? I will leave with you the helper, the paracletus, the Holy Spirit of God, and he will serve in my stead. He will permanently indwell all who believe in me. It's a remarkable gift that the Lord has given to us. And this is why there's so much emphasis on following Jesus as Lord and Master in the Gospels, because he had not yet gone to the cross. So as Bible students, we need to be careful to interpret Scripture in its historical context, not reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament, but really context really matters. So for example, so turn with me back to John 3.16. I told you we would come back here. John 3.16. Again, I think this encapsulates the the message that is trying to be conveyed through the Gospel of John. So again, let me read it to you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. That's what our kids are learning uh, about today in their classes. This is what they learn about in Iwana when they come here in our Ignite youth group. This is one of the first verses that I memorized as a child. Even though I was an unbeliever, I knew the verse. But I don't know about you, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's been a long-standing debate as to whether those are the words of Jesus in John 3.16 or commentary from John. Have you thought about this? You ever wondered about this? If you have a red letter version of the Bible, you will see that from John 3, 10 to 21 is in red, right? That indicates that the translators believed that these are the words of Jesus, that Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and so on. But there are many New Testament scholars that believe that Jesus ended his speaking in either verse 12 or in verse 15, and the words that follow are the commentary of John. Some of the great Greek scholars of our day believe that this is the commentary of John because the personal pronouns change. A.T. Robertson, one of the greatest Greek scholars who ever lived, he's a former professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he believed because of the Greek construction that verse 16 and following was John's commentary. But the truth is, whether John 3.16 or the words of Jesus or John, what does the Bible say? All Scripture is inspired by God. If you have a MacArthur Study Bible, you do not have a red-letter edition of the MacArthur Study Bible because they intentionally didn't do it. Because all Scripture is inspired by God. So John 3.16 is either the words of Jesus or it's the words of John, but it is equally as true whether Jesus said it or whether John said it because the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of the Bible. All scripture is inspired by God. But the point is, and the reason why I raise it, these words are prior to the cross. Okay? So we look at this. And we say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Believes in Jesus, who went to the cross, who died in the place of sinners, who was resurrected from the dead, lived on the earth er, er, in a glorified body for 40 days, ascended up into heaven from the Mount of Olives, and is in the heavenlies preparing a place for those who believe in him. But he's not yet gone to the cross when that is, is, is written. So God loved, he's talking about the gift that God gives. God gave the love gift of the Son to come to the earth. And so that's why there's such an emphasis in the Gospels on the Lordship of Christ, because it's not until the end of the Gospels that he goes to the cross. So we can't, they wouldn't believe in jesus as savior because he hasn't gone to the cross they would believe in him as lord as messiah as the one predicted in the old testament as the anointed one of god who was sent by god to come to the earth that would go to the cross i know that sounds like a nuance but it's important that we are precise in our drilling down of the words of scripture but the Jews were not uninformed of what the Messiah would be sent to do, right? Isaiah 53 prophetically spells out Jesus impending cross work, but the division that we see here among the people is whether Jesus is the Messiah. So that's an issue here. Is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? There's something special about him. The masses followed him. They saw his miracles. They heard his words. They knew that he had never gone to a rabbinical school, but he was absolutely captivating when he spoke. They knew there was something special about him. They didn't know if he's a prophet. They didn't know if he was, you know, some sort of a deceiver. They, they didn't know. But, but an issue is, is this the Messiah? Is this the one sent by God? And let me just say this. I don't think there's any confusion here in our church, but salvation has always been by grace, through faith, in what God has revealed to man. All on the basis of the sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary. The Old Testament saints look forward to the cross, we as New Testament saints look back at the cross, but it is all based upon the cross work of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It's all on the basis of the cross work of Jesus. No one was ever saved by keeping the law. In fact, as we've said earlier, the purpose of the law was to show that man was a sinner. He couldn't keep it that was the purpose of the law to show that we need christ no one could keep the law perfectly all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god there's none righteous not even one So no one was ever saved by keeping the law. There aren't two ways of salvation. There's one way of salvation proclaimed in the Bible. It's by grace through faith in what the Lord has revealed to man. All on the basis of the cross work of Jesus. Well, I've got Israel on my mind. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. I just finished up some things with uh, the group that is going to be doing the logistics for us on the trip and So, I've been thinking a lot about it. I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to be going back to the land that Jesus walked. So, here recently, in the last couple of chapters, we've learned of Galilee. So, we're going to be there. We learned of Capernaum, which is up near the Sea of Galilee. We're going to be there. We're going to be in the same spot that Jesus eventually ascends up into heaven on the Mount of Olives that stares directly across at the Temple Mount area where there's an Islamic mosque that sits today, right where the temple once stood, where Jesus was teaching. It's going to be a great time of recalling all that we've learned in the Gospel of John. We're going to see almost perfectly maintained Altars that are there that we can go and look at and and to see where we can visualize that this is where the priest would stand and he would receive the animals and he would slaughter them on the altar to temporarily cover the sins of man. But as we are moving towards the cross, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the once-for-all sacrifice. It's a reminder that these things that took place at the altars and in the temple courtyard and all the different places that we have considered, it was all a lead-up to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. So as we move through the rest of chapter 7, we're going to see that there's this great division continuing to grow over the claims of Jesus. Sound familiar? Just like today. If you need Christ as your Savior, trust in Him today. Lord, thank You for our time in the Word today. Thank You for uh, the gift of Jesus who means so much to us. Thank You that we can know Him. You've, he's revealed Himself to us, came to the earth, been revealed to us through the Scriptures, the power of the Spirit of God working in our hearts to draw us to, to Christ. And Lord, we would pray that if there's someone here today that doesn't know Jesus as Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. And next week as we celebrate our 12 year anniversary as a local church and we baptize five different people who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior and we watch them obediently be baptized in front of all of us it's a reminder that you're still working you're still working in the lives of people and we thank you for that thank you again for your word that is so powerful we thank you and praise you In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, amen.